but it's How fun. How many times can you hear Brad Dourif scream, you little bitch? <laughs> well, watch that movie, you'll find out. Radio Drone. It's another episode of Radio Drome, and I am Josh Hadley, and we are traveling all the way back in time with my friend, Fred Fritz. Hola, I am doctoring the TARDIS for sure in this episode. Cecil and Peter won't be joining us tonight. I'm just moving on from that, because Peter has something he's got to do with his girlfriend, and Cecil is having major technical problems at the moment. So the topic we had scheduled for tonight kind of requires those two, so we're going to table that for now, and we'll be talking about... 1988 in film. But before that, you guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. You remember 1988 was a weird year for film because We had just come off 1987, which had a lot of films that either redefined or defined their respective genres. And then you've got 1989, which will go and do that again with monster, record-breaking blockbusters like Batman and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Then you kind of have 1988 sitting in the middle there. Even when we were discussing doing this, until I started looking at a list, I was like, eh, 88's kind of a bum year. And then I went, oh, maybe not. Yeah, I when I looked at the list myself, and I, of course, you know, I like to earmark a few that I want to talk about or stand out, and you know what ended up happening? There were too many. I had to start leaving things off the list because I was like, well, there's no way we're talking about all these. It was a great year for some big movies, but there is some wonderful little fall through the crack films in that year as well. So it's it's a killer year. It really is. And kind of a little bit of a... How do we want to say a foreshadowing of things to come in the next year? It's also kind of a a leaving behind moment, too, because I'm looking at like the top 10 highest grossing films. And usually there's, you know, a horror film in there, a couple of sci fi movies, Mm -hmm. nothing, nothing like that. For the top 10, you've got Rain Man drama, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I guess you could call it a genre film technically, but not really. Coming to America, comedy, big comedy. Twins, comedy, Crocodile Dundee 2, comedy, Die Hard, action film, Naked Gun, comedy, Cocktail, drama, and Beetlejuice, comedy, although technically that one might be genre too. This is one of the first time we've done one of these where there really has not been a genre film in the top ten. I didn't realize that going in. I I noticed that and I was like, wait a minute, I don't know if that was distinctly 1989. 1988, because 1989, almost all the top grossing films are genre films. So I don't know if this was just the quiet before the nerd storm, maybe? Yeah, I think that's safe. It, it, You know, you said it was also a leaving behind. I noticed something that was kind of interesting. There were a few genres that 
seemingly were coming to an end at this time, if you look, too. Uh, I think you're kind of beginning to wrap up the the macho, like, testosterone-driven action films were... They weren't dead, obviously, but Die Hard, I think, was kind of the ringing of the bell of a new type of action film that was going to come. Uh, they weren't oh, gonna, absolutely. Oh, yeah, they weren't going to look like Schwarzenegger and Stallone anymore. It wasn't going to be these, these guys that never got hit by a bullet. Things were changing. Uh, it was also, like... I noticed there were some films that had that Russian thing still going on, but they all kind of bombed red heat that bombed uh, the rescue about the North Korea thing. You know, the kids rescuing their dad from North Korea that bombed Iron Rambo Eagle two, Iron Eagle two red, uh, not red. I'm sorry. Uh, Rambo three. It was the end of an era that you could see. It was the end of one era and the shining of a light into a new one. There was also another weird ethnic ending here, too. Remember from about 1986 to 88, America had this really weird obsession with Australia? Now, I'm not talking about, like, the exploitation stuff from the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s. But remember, you had Crocodile Dundee and, of course, its sequel. And then you had Young Einstein and you had, like, four other big Aussie movies. I mean, hell, you even had Howling 3 come out in this era. And remember, we just had this fascination with Australia. Oh, yeah. For, we like, had- two years and then... And it just stopped. Remember the guy, I can't think of his name, but did the Duracell commercial, the oi guy, you know, knock it off. I dare you to knock it off. Remember that guy? He was in the Highwaymen TV series. I can't think, but whatever. Yes, I agree entirely. Yeah, there was a weird fascination with uh, with Australia, and you were seeing things of Australia, little pieces of it everywhere, plus the movies. Yeah, it was it was definitely there. As you pointed out, Die Hard was sort of the switchover, but Die Hard was at the end of the year. That was a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, you still had the the Danglers, like the horrendous Action Jackson. Ugh. That is, that is a movie that's played completely straight, and I don't believe it is satire. You, you you read everything around it. Nowadays, you can kind of look at Action Jackson and go, oh, this is a satire of the action movie genre. Not at the time it was. This was a straight movie. And when you look at this movie, you go, this was what Die Hard put down. They t- Die Hard took this out behind the shed and quietly put a bullet in it. Because Action Jackson, he drives a Ferrari through the main bad guy's house up the steps. Yeah, it, it was the end. I think Red Heat also, it, Red Heat's not as bad as Action Jackson. Red Heat's watchable. But Red Heat it, actually has, and I know how weird this is going to sound, but Lucian and Schwarzenegger have a weird chemistry that actually works in that. It's too bad they didn't try to put them together again in something else. So I would, it, I'd agree. It, with that, it was the script. But, but I'm just saying, those two guys, you wouldn't think they'd work together. But they do. No, they do. I'm agreeing. I'm saying I would love to have seen those two actors together again in something else, but not Red Heat 2. But then you also had another kind of action movie coming in. And you had the beginning, you know, you had Jean-Claude Van Damme coming in this year with Bloodsport. And you also had Steven Seagal coming in this year with Above the Law. These guys taking the mantle from the Schwarzeneggers and the Stallones, even Mm -hmm. though you still have Rambo 3 and all that, you have the new kind of action hero. And then John McClane comes in just to cap off the year. Yeah, and one more thing. My theory about comedies, kind of, uh, as the British would say, taking the piss out of what's come before, there was the movie, I love this film, Dead Heat. 
Uh, I saw that in the theater, and people hated that movie. That's I the weird thing. I loved it. I didn't see it till cable. I didn't see it till cable, but I loved Dead Heat the first time I saw it. I laughed my head off in the theater at that movie. People walked out saying how much it sucked and that, and I didn't understand. But Dead Heat, you cannot deny, is definitely popping that balloon, that action hero, overstuffed. I mean, you know, obviously there's a Dirty Harry movie in here. That's what Dead Heat was making fun of, those kinds of movies. So this was really the ringing of the bell for that classic 80s action movie, air quotes. Well, okay, speaking of Dirty Harry, you have the Deadpool, which we discussed much in much more detail on our Dirty Harry retrospective, but the Deadpool was also very, very self-aware. I know a lot of people didn't like this aspect of it. Harry Callahan in the movie is aware of what an almost cartoonish character Harry Callahan has become. You know, the pop culture in the movie recognizes this. I don't think people really liked that at the time. Yeah, we weren't quite to that Scream era yet. I don't think, you know, and I think the Deadpool suffers from some other problems that maybe shined a light more onto that. If you know what I mean, like when when a movie has a flaw, if it's a really good movie, people will overlook it, even if it's something they don't like. But the Deadpool's biggest flaw, and I still stand by this, and I like the movie, by the way. I, I think it's better than Sudden Impact. The problem with Dirty Harry films was something that was progressive. The villains kind of got worse and worse as the films went. And the Deadpool has the worst villain of them all. He's barely shown. It's it's a terrible mystery. You don't think it's Liam Neeson. You're supposed to think it's Liam Neeson. You know it's not Liam Neeson. That was the biggest mistake, because all the other movies, you have a clearly defined villain and a hero. This one, they tried to make it a mystery for some reason. Like, ooh, who's the killer? Yeah. And it's like, that's not what Dirty Harry movies are about. I think that's what hurt Magnum Force, too. It was like, gee, I wonder if it's the fascist league of cops over there or that one drunk cop everybody thinks it is. You know, these films are not good mysteries. You need a clearly defined villain to make Harry stand out. And this is the worst offender of the lot. There's just no doubt about that. And then obviously we'll get into genre in a little bit, mm -hmm. but like some of the other non-genre films, and I'm going to go a little bit alphabetically here. You, you had stuff like Arthur Two on the Rocks. Directed by Bud Yorkin himself. Mm -hmm. What the hell was he thinking? I didn't like Arthur, but Arthur too. This is one of those few times where I go, that deserved every Razzie it was up for. What the hell happened? I, I'll say this much for Arthur too. When I saw it, I did laugh. Okay, I've seen a lot of bad comedies in my life, and I always say a bad comedy is the one you don't laugh at. There were some funny lines. But this is in that clear-cut category of the world's most unnecessary sequel. Betrayed, Joe Lesterhouse script with Deborah Winger and Tom Berenger. Mm -hmm. Betrayed, this is the weird thing I have about it. Parts of it work great, and parts of it really, really don't. I hate to say it, and not just giving the, given the racial political climate of now, I think Betrayed is one of those movies that needs to be remade. Because I think there was a good story here. It just didn't come out of this movie. I agree. Uh, if you look at Mississippi Burning, same year. Mississippi and Burning is fantastic, though. It's amazing. That's my point. And Betrayed was a great idea for a movie. With good actors. have to agree with you. I'd like to see Betrayed done again. Well, and then you've got The Accused with Jodie Foster and Kelly McGillis. I'm not making fun of rape here. That's the movie that spawned a thousand pinball machine sex memes. And really... Again, I'm not trying to discount rape. It's not really that good of a movie, though. Again, 
It's a good idea for a film, and it's got a great cast and great acting. I didn't think the script was very good, though. At the time, it really felt like a really good movie, and the acting was very good in it, but it's one of those films that has not stood the test of time. All of the, uh, what helped me here, like the, the trappings of the time, the way they made films, the way they approached a subject, you could see and feel a very 80s approach to the film, and I think it needed something a little harder edge, something a little grittier, maybe almost documentary style. And this film is not that. It hasn't stood up to the test of time. And then you've got one of the biggest box office winners, Cocktail. I don't know how they thought this was a full movie. I mean, Elizabeth Shue is cute as hell in this movie. I Honestly, I think Adventures in Babysitting was the only time she was cuter. Why was Cocktail such a hit? It has almost no story in it. Tom Cruise is honestly terrible in it. Why was Cocktail (laughs) such a hit? I think Cocktail is that great example of a product. It's, it's just kind of a fun movie. I think it hit at the right time. It had the right songs. Uh, everybody was on kind of a cruise mania at the time. You remember that? It was a, Tom Cruise was kind of big at that moment. I think it just sort of got by on its pedigree more than its script. It's not a bad movie though, really. It's just pure fluff. Yeah, it's pure fluff. It's 100% fluff. And I'll tell you where you really feel it. That last third when it tries to get serious and oh no, the girl he's been with, she's pregnant and oh, it's going to teaching you a lesson. Yeah, it's teaching you a lesson. And it's like, you know what they would have done in the sixties as an exploitation. Wink, wink. This was trying to do serious and it, it just didn't work. But come on, admit it. It's not that bad of a movie. It's fluff. It's pure fluff. You have another one where I like the movie, but I really do not like the movie, and that's Colors by Dennis Hopper. The movie, it's I'm not trying to crap on Dennis Hopper. It's not very well directed. It's full of continuity errors. From t- I mean, seriously, I'm in the theater and going, what the hell? This is clearly cobbled together from four different takes, and none of them are matching. The characters are inconsistent. I get what Hopper was trying to do. Don't think he was the right director to tell a deep tale about racial segregation in the ghetto of New York and the war between the cops and the Latinos and the blacks. Dennis Hopper wasn't the right guy for this. Well, uh, I won't disagree. All I'll say is uh, the script was originally penned by Sean Penn, and it was about drug dealers who were moving cough syrup. I'm not even kidding, which is weird. If you think about it, that could be kind of a forerunner to Breaking Bad. You know, the idea of methamphetamine, you know, from uh, the the cough suppressant that was uh, used in like Sudafed. And uh, maybe that's what he was going for. But obviously a script about cops trying to stop the illegal shipments of <laughs> cough medicine maybe wasn't the greatest script to start with to base this film on and you know they gave it a rewrite obviously the cough syrup was removed but i think it's a it might be a case of both and having robert duvall help to elevate it but it this would have probably made a better canon movie you know what would have been a great canon movie cop although it's <laughs> a bad title cop with james woods yes. james woods as a super corrupt cop i'm on board right there yeah. In fact, I kind of remember that was all the – correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't that kind of the whole advertisement? Weren't they just putting James Wood's face on everything at that time? For that yeah. I mean, he, he was a prototype Vic Mackey. Yeah. Yeah. They were – I remember like even the video box I remember was like just his face. And that's such a bad title, cop. It's a horrible. Could title. you have? Could you have come across? Could you come up with a worse title? 
I, I, look, I, you know, we know about the whole one word title. They want something catchy. The, the joke about Jaws when it, before it came out, they were like, is this a movie about orthodontists? Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I'll, I'll forgive them. I mean, the movies. Okay, if you like, it's like Eric Roberts. If you know uh, Patara's fascination with Eric Roberts, James Woods is kind of that same way. If you want to see him manic and crazed, uh, then you'd probably enjoy it, but it's not a particularly great movie. And then you have the sleeping pill that was Dangerous Liaisons, which I could not get into at all. And <laughs> but Fred, come on, you had Keanu, man. It's just not a very engaging film. <laughs> no, I just love the scene where John Malkovich, who can act, right? I think we agree, don't we? John Malkovich, oh, yeah. great actor, and he's talking in the Victorian age, and I am going to battle you, sir, for the late <laughs> Keanu Reeves is like total... Dude, I will, like, totally take your heart, man. (laughs) I will totally, like, defend my lady's honor. Oh, it's, it's like, here you got this Victorian piece, these lavish costumes, and then you got freaking Ted Esquire in there. I love David Cronenberg, but I just never, I've seen Dead Ringers four times. I've never liked it once, and I keep wanting to like it. I like the idea of it. I like the cast. I love Cronenberg. Mm. I don't know why Dead Ringers does absolutely nothing for me. And then we got Gorillas in the Mist, which I think is, if I don't know how accurate it is to the true story, but I think it's an amazing film, and I think Sigourney Weaver deserved her Oscar nomination for Gorillas in the Mist. Yeah, it's this is one of those hard ones because... It's a good movie. The acting's good. The special effects, for those that don't know, are amazing because actually built gorillas and you, you can't tell. It's just not a film I like to go back to. How about you? Is this a film you go back to watch ever? Because I don't. No. I mean, I saw it once and I th- I'm just saying it's a great film. I don't think I'd ever sit through it again. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's a, a barometer or not. Well, it's, you know, Mississippi Burning was based off of true events and I've seen Mississippi burning about a dozen times. Same here. Same here. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what that says about the movie. Then you've got Heathers by Michael Lehman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Heathers, I I like the the satire of it. I like how mean it is. I like how unforgiving it is. And I like Christian Slater in his most Jack Nicholson ever. Winona Ryder is so unlikable in this movie. And I don't mean in a way we're supposed to. I mean, she is just terrible in this. And if you can get past Christian Slater being an early doppelganger of Jack Nicholson, Heathers is all right. But I just, I don't know. I I didn't think it worked the way it should have. Heathers is a film for years that has both fascinated me and repelled me. It's a film that's both brilliant and pandering at the same time, if that makes sense. There are elements I love. It's a movie I want to love. I love dark comedies. I love satire, especially social satire. And yet there's something about this movie that kind of irritates me. Parts of it come across uh, like it's trying too hard. Yes, yes. There, in fact, there's a great line with the one character says, F me gently with a chainsaw. And in a weird sort of way. That's exactly the line I was thinking of. Yeah. There, for and, trying too hard to be edgy. But isn't it funny? That's kind of the movie too, isn't it? It's missing that flow, that natural narrative flow. It's like it, it needs that one more thing to make it just kind of just a Catch that boat ride from the beginning to the end. And look, you said Winona Ryder's terrible in it. I didn't think she was terrible, but here, I got to give my bias. I was madly in love with her at the time. So she stole your heart. Oh, <laughs> but she... 
<laughs> gone. Uh, she was just somebody I had a thing for, so maybe I didn't notice how bad, cause she has been bad in movies. I mean, there's- Alien what, Resurrection. Well, yeah, but watch Girl Interrupted, and everybody else is knocking it out of the park, and, oh, is she out of her element there? Or, uh, or Bram Stoker's Dracula? She killed- I, I was okay with Keanu, but her, she was trying so hard. Take me away from all this death! She, she, like, wow, girl, dial it back a little, you know? Yeah, she works in odd, it's, she's one of those actresses or actors that just fits better in an odd film. I, again, I don't dislike her in Heathers though. Uh, unlike you, I don't think she's like Beetlejuice, she's great in that, she's great in recently in Stranger Things, and if I could think real fast, Lucas, she was good in Lucas. I, I think she's just one of those actors that has to fit the role. That's it. How about and how about actors who did not fit the role? The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> this movie, it was so controversial. I remember I went to go see this, and remember I'm I'm 13 at the time. I have no interest in a movie like this, but with all the controversy, I've got to see this. And I'm like, what the hell was the controversy? Because first, you got an amazing cast who are all miscast. Every single one of them. They treat the biblical times of Christ as a New York stage play. And I literally mean they have the New York accent in the whole thing. The whole time they're talking with the New York accent, you know, eh? Yeah, hey, 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 Jesus, why don't you just tell these people? Harvey Keitel is the worst offender. He's hysterical in this film. He is absolutely hysterical. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing with this day? Tell him, hey, yo, wait. Oh, my gosh. It Look, I haven't seen the whole film. I'll admit it right now. At the time, it was because I had heard what the film was about, and I held, held no interest. You know, everyone who knows me on this show knows I am a Bible-believing Christian. So at that time... Then later, I decided, well, I've seen other films that were probably way worse. You know what I mean? So it's like, let's check this one out. I couldn't watch it. It was so bad. It was so horribly written, so poorly acted. Well, you know what one film no one cared about in 1988? Mm. Somebody had the bright idea. Pippi Longstocking needed to come back. <laughs> Remember the new adventures of Pippi Longstocking? I I, I don't, I remember seeing the film once on like Disney Channel or, or ABC Family or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember going, is the plot going to kick in at any point? And then I realized there is no plot. There, there really isn't. And here's, there's the, none. Uh, that's Pippi Longstocking though. I actually watched all the original Pippies back when they were, cause they were actually, uh, they were shown in America as movies, but it was a TV series over in, was it Sweden or Finland? I, I can't remember. It's been too long. I watched all of them. I loved Pippi Longstocking as a child. Okay. And so I had to see the movie just out of that pure curiosity. Man, I don't know what it is, but they, something was missing. And I know some people would say a plot, but Pippi was more of like a adventure to adventure. You know what I mean? Like, oh, something would happen at the house. Two robbers would try to break in to steal the gold. The teacher would say, Pippi, you got to go to school. And, you know, a truant officer would chase her to get her into school. And it was just a child beating adults. You know what I mean? That was the whole premise of this fantasy. This movie did not capture an ounce of that magic. I, I don't know why. Well, and then you got the number one box office draw, multiple Oscar winning Rain Man. I don't dislike Rain Man. I honestly think Tom Cruise is the biggest problem. He, he gives a fine performance, but he comes across as too much of Tom Cruise in this movie. He doesn't come across as his character. He comes across as Tom Cruise in this film. And I think that's what yanks me out of this movie every time I try and watch it. I like Cruise in it. I, I really do. And I think he did a good job. 
this to me is going to be another case where rewatching the film, I felt like there was a lot of opportunities to develop the story. And there really isn't much of a story. If you break down all the scenes in this movie, it's Tom Cruise trying to achieve something and being held back by the fact that he has Raymond with him. And then he tries to exploit Raymond, you know, with the counting cards. And there's really nothing going on. It's like the first 15 minutes you get what the setup is. And then the last 15 minutes you get the resolve. And then the rest of it is... Really no meat on that bone. I don't know. Would you agree with me on that? Because I don't think there's much of a... It's like, give me the memorable moments in Rain Man. You'll get a few lines. That in-between doesn't really contain a whole lot of meat. I can't argue with you. Mm. Just like, I remember seeing Rambo 3 in the theater. And even <laughs> even my little 13-year-old brain was going, what the hell was that? Yeah, this was uh, the beginning of the end. This was the sudden impact of the Rambo franchise. Um, I'll say this. I think it's filmed better than uh, part two. Wow, that plot, huh? And the, and the one then we had Rattle and Hum, the U2 rockumentary that got all the praise. I don't like the band, so that didn't do anything for me. The Sidney Lumet film, Running on Empty, I did not like it when I was a kid. I saw it when it first came to HBO. Saw it again about a dozen years ago and went, this is a really good movie. You know what film will never get better with age? <laughs> School Days. Mike Lee is a hack. He was a hack in 1988, and he's a hack today. School Days sucked then, and it sucks now. Uh, I am no social justice warrior, so when I say this, I don't believe he's a hack. But I think he's a filmmaker who who definitely has that pattern, that hit or miss pattern. When he does a really good movie, it's it's fantastic, and you're engaged. I I saw the uh, what's it called, Man Inside with Clive Owen. That freaking movie rocks. I think Malcolm X is a fantastic movie. I think Do the Right Thing is a fantastic movie. And not because, again, of the, the so-called social. I think they're good movies. But then you watch films like School Days, or I'll tell you one that's even worse than School Days, Girl Number 6. Summer of Sam, I was going to say. Oh, I never saw Summer of Sam. I never saw oh. that. So I can't judge that one. So he's a filmmaker that when he hits, he hits. When he misses, oh gosh, is it painful. Then you had James Glickenhouse's Amazing Shakedown, a.k.a. Blue Jean Cop. I love that. I mean, Peter Weller and Sam Elliott teaming up to take on corrupt cops? Yes. Okay, here it comes. Everybody get ready to hate. I hated the movie in 1988. I think this is com that comparative reviewing I talk about. There were so many great movies at that time and before that at that time I didn't appreciate what I had. I saw the film, like, I don't know, again in 90... Uh, say 98 99 somewhere in there and i gotta tell you i loved it and i went how did i hate this movie how and i hated it i mean i literally hated it i was i was so wrong and i think it was because you know it's a bit sloppy all right it is a bit sloppy it's not what you'd call a tightly written thriller ludicrous it's over the top that's exactly why it's fun, and I didn't appreciate it at the time. And an amazing cast. Oh, well, the cast, you know, if you didn't have Peter Weller and Sam Elliott, I, I don't think you would have, I don't think it would have been memorable. And well, then you've got, you know, Stand and Deliver, which it's a great movie, but you really, kind of like Gorillas in the Mist, unless you're really into inner city math, it's not a movie you're going to rewatch. Yeah, that's one of those films, I think, I've seen that one more than once, unlike Gorillas in the Mist, and it's one of those films that 
like if it comes up in the topic of a conversation, someone goes, I've never seen that. You might find yourself rewatching it again with them. But yeah, this isn't it's it's a great movie, a great subject, great acting uh, without question. But yeah, that it's again, these type of films tend to not always nail the uh, the the rewatch factor. Just like talk radio. I've always been fascinated with radio. I used to work in radio. I want to like talk radio so bad. I love the way Oliver Stone directs it. But my God, the characters are all so thoroughly unlikable. And again, people always like, well, you're not supposed to like the characters. Yes, but I'm still supposed to like them enough that I want to see something good happen to them. I think the characters are all unlikable. The ending is telegraphed five minutes into the film. Mm -hmm. And and Michael Wincott is so brutally miscast as a high teenager in this. The guy was nearly 30 when he made this movie, and he looks every every day of that 30. And he's playing a teenager, and I'm like, what were you thinking, Stone? Yeah, I, to give you an example, I didn't even know that was supposed to be a teenager. Uh... He mentions at one point his parents aren't home yet, and he's under curfew. So I'm like, all of a sudden I go, wait a minute, he's supposed to be a teenager. I put talk radio into the same category that I put Salvador. I actually like both movies, but they have those misfire moments that keep them from being the film they could have been. And then you got tape heads. Ah. I absolutely love tape heads. Now tape heads is one of those weird movies where I'm going to break my own rules. Really, there's no real plot. There's a threadbare plot, but the characters are so engaging and the set pieces are so good. When the plot kicks in, it almost gets in the way of the movie sometimes, doesn't it? I, I got to tell you, this was one of the films on my list that if you didn't bring it up, I was going to. This film, I remember seeing the uh, television show reviews. They hated this movie, yet every clip they showed... I like it was hilarious. And I it's got John Cusack, Mike Nesmith produced it. Yeah, Mike Nesmith of the Opera plays an FBI agent <laughs> in it. I knew you were gonna bring that one up. I was gonna leave that one for you. And then I finally got to see this movie, and I'm like, how could anyone not love this movie? It is weird, 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 and that's why it's great. And I agree. A plot would have brought this down. And it still has one of my favorite lines of, I think we talked about this before now that I think about it, two ninja bitches going to kill each other. <laughs> you have to see the movie to know what I'm talking about. It doesn't make much more sense in context, people, but still. No, it's great. It's And the songs are good, too. It's got good songs in it. It's funny. It's weird. You've got to see Tapeheads. You'll, well, if, you'll, if you're listening to this show, you probably will love it. You guys have to go get your passports or we can get fined per minuto. <laughs> 1,000 per minuto. Uh, and, th and then you had some others like Tequila Sunrise, meh. Tucker, man in, uh, meh, The Man in His Dream, pass. You have Torch Song Trilogy for all you Harvey Firestein fans out there. And then, you know, you've got like, remember Vice Versa where somebody thought Fred Savage and Judge Reinhold switching spots was going to be a good idea? Hey man, eight, that was the, that was the body switch year, man. We had 18 again also. Yep. That was that team. And then, and then we got Working Girl, which I, I'm about to be as hipster as I can. I liked the TV series better than the movie. And you know, the TV series starring Sandra Bullock that nobody remembers but me. I liked better. I like the movie. I, I don't care. I, I don't care if I get, lose my geek cred for saying I, I like a Mike Nichols movie with uh, Melanie Griffith. <laughs> Danny Bilson's The Wrong Guys for the drama category or comedy category. I want, again, I wanted to like this movie. I, there are so many great characters and there are a lot of great character moments in it, great actors. This movie 
dies for me because of Richard Lewis. I just, you know, that neurotic Richard Lewis thing. Oh my God. Oh my, I need to see my therapist. Oh my God. He gets so much screen time in this movie. He kills it for me. He makes me hate this movie, which I shouldn't hate. Uh, I didn't hate Richard Lewis, but I'll agree it's it's too much. Too much of him. Uh, the reason I like The Wrong Guys is this is pretty much a Trancers reunion. <laughs> Danny Bilson, who wrote Trancers, wrote and directed this. It's got Biff Maynard, who was in Trancers. It's got Art LaFleur, who was in Trancers. It's got, of course, the one, the only... Tim Thomerson. Those... Richard Belzer. He's not he's not from Trancers, but Richard nope. Belzer's Richard... awesome. Oh, so. and Brian James is in it because he you know, and him and Tim were buddies growing up. Not growing up, I'm sorry. Uh, uh coming up. Coming up. It's got its charm. It's not a great movie. I don't dislike it, but I, I understand the annoyance. Well, let's go into the genre films of nineteen eighty eight. Mm. First you've got Akira, which love it or hate it, you cannot deny what Akira did for bringing anime films the respectability that it needed in the late 80s to America. Yeah, there's no arguing that. It's it's a near plotless movie, unfortunately, because they didn't, the comic wasn't even finished, and it you can tell. Uh, it's kind of... Even then, hollow. though, even, even with the comic not being finished, they still had almost 600 pages of the comic, which they boiled down into 90 minutes. You're going to miss some stuff. It, it's a visual feast. But I still think they focused on the wrong things in the movie. The the comic has some fascinating plot lines, and they skipped over all of them. Talk about another movie that just the TV series was better, and that's Alien Nation. When, when Alien Nation was created, it was created to poke fun not just at other movies, but also at the social ills going on around the world, especially the racial ills. Because, I mean, obviously the newcomers are are a clear cipher for black people in the late 80s, especially with uh, South Africa at this point just about to get rid of apartheid. Alien Nation, when he got control of the TV show, he basically remade the movie as the TV pilot. And he did it better because James Conn and Mandy Patinkin are just wasted in this movie. Literally just a buddy cop thriller. That where one of the cops is an alien. They, they waste all the potential of the idea in this movie. I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to completely agree. Film doesn't work. And great actors, yes. But you know what? I think they were miscast. Gary Graham did a much better job than James Caan. You know, I'm not going to say who's the better actor overall, but I think Gary Graham brought that nuance that that character needed. I think that the ideas were developed better. And, you know, it also acts as a, as a, uh, oh boy, I can't think of the word, but it, it it's a great opposite to V. You know, the V was the analogy of uh, fascism coming to America. So the aliens were the literal alien, you know, uh, coming into the country and you know, dissecting it and taking it over. Whereas Alien Nation was using the aliens as, like you said, it's a, it's a metaphor. And the, the TV series was pretty freaking good. The first time I saw a trailer for Bad Dreams, I said, this looks interesting, but I've seen it before. Oh, yeah, this is a Nightmare on Elm Street all over again, just with Richard Lynch as the villain. And then I saw the film and went, how did no one get sued? This is a Nightmare on Elm Street with Richard Lynch as the villain. I can't disagree. It it looks like somebody watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and would agree if they even cast Jennifer Rubin from Nightmare on Elm Street 3 in it. it, it it's pretty obvious they were wearing that one on their sleeve. I wonder if it's one of those backroom deals that got made. You know, New Line got something for allowing them to do this. <laughs> Now, the next film, 
I love the 1988 The Blob movie, the Chuck Russell one, mm-hmm. the one written by Frank Darbaugh. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite 80s movies ever. I just love it. I love the characters. I love the dialogue. I love the, yes, some of the special effects don't work when, you know, the compositing. I love the special effects. The stop motion blob looks way better than the jelly shoved through a fake door of the original. I just, I adore the 1988 blob. That's one of those few times where I went, a remake did it right. And you know what? I love the original. I think it's a perfect film of its time. It, you know, it looks like its time period. It represents its time period. And it's fun to go back and watch. But this is one of those cases where the remake nailed it. You know, there might have, there's a couple of small missteps, but I think it's a fun movie. I liked Kevin Dillon. I liked Shawnee Smith. I liked everybody in it, really. It, it's, it's good, and the gore actually feels like it works. It's not just there to be exploitive. Fits what's going on in the story, and there's some couple shocks that I think genuinely work. You also have them adding the whole distrust of the government thing in this, because to quote Kevin Dillon in it, it's some kind of germ warfare test. They fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the big twist in the story is who's responsible for it, and it works. It's fun. It's a good time. Uh, put it in and have have a great time. I like Brain Damage, but you really can't call Brain Damage a good time movie. Yes, Zachary is fun as hell as the voice of Elmer, but this is a mean-spirited movie. I've never liked this franchise. The first Child's Play movie is 88. I've never... I saw 1, 2, and 3 in the theater, and I didn't like any of them. I kept wanting to. That's why people are going to ask, why'd you keep go seeing them? Because I wanted to like these. Everyone was telling me how good these were. Child's Play sucks. I like the first one. That's it. That's where it ends. The first one. It's it, it was what it was, and it was unabashed about it. I thought it was well made. It was fun. It 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 kept its tongue very firmly in its cheek. It was, I think, making fun of not in the the same way like Scream did, but it was making fun a little bit of the the whole killer genre. But it did it the right way by playing it straight and just having a good time like okay could we make a doll literally a killer doll and you know they had fun i like it it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination but it's how many times can you hear brad durf scream you little bitch (laughs) well watch that movie you'll find out i don't think it deserves the hate it gets well the bad sequels you had critters 2 the main course i loved critters and and i really have a soft spot for critters 4 although i don't know why Critters 2 is terrible. Critters 2 was almost a carbon copy of the first film. It, it, it was, it's, it's kind of like The Hangover Part 2. They just took the first film, swapped a few things around, and said, get this thing out quick. It wants to be self-aware. It wants to be, oh, look how clever we are. And unfortunately, it kind of fails on all fronts. There's a few fun moments in it. I wouldn't say it's unwatchable, but the first It's one, better than three. Well, the the first one is the best one. There's no doubt about it. The first one is is got a lot of heart. It's a fun little movie. I, I'm sorry if I keep saying fun. I don't. We're we're just naming these type of movies now. It was. It was a charming little film. This one had a bigger budget, and it's like you said. It's almost kind of a remake, but with a bigger budget, though. I'd say, and it doesn't necessarily make it better. It's okay. It's not awful. There's really no point to see it. So. Well, you mentioned fun movies. Have you seen Doing Time on Planet Earth? No. That is a fun movie. It's a movie that knows exactly what it is. It plays it light, although it's got some, you know, dirtier jokes in it. I'd say you 
people you should check out doing time on planet Earth. You also had like Earth Girls Are Easy with Jeff Goldblum and Jim Carrey, which I didn't like. But I want to talk Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, also this year. Yes. I don't know why this movie is not funny. It should be. It's got all the elements to be funny. And it's got funny scenes. Mm -hmm. So don't take me out of context. The movie, this is another movie like Tapeheads where it should not have had a plot. The plot is horrible in this movie and keeps stopping the movie dead. They'll have funny little set pieces and then, oh, we got to get back to the plot. This movie needed to be plotless and I think would have worked. Strangely enough, and I said this on the Projection Booth episode about this movie, it feels super dated for 1988. It's all of this conservatism versus free thinking, and a lot of the jokes feel very 1982. And then you find out that the script was originally written in 1982, and you go, this is a movie that's literally six years too late. I, You know, I, I want to kind of take you on on this one, but you're not wrong. The the film is a lot more fun than I think you're making it sound. There are several really great set pieces, and that's part of the problem I think you're talking about, is that when it goes away from those set pieces into this story, air quotes, begins to fall apart. There's a, like a great scene in the movie is where uh, she's got to go find out what she's, uh, she finds out her great aunt died, and she's going to go find out what she inherited and in her mind she envisions it like a game show which shows you how shallow Elvira really is and if the rest of the movie had been that mentality I think it would have just been a great comedy as it stands it's a fun movie I like it I still watch it I love Elvira I go back to it it but no it's not a great movie the plot gets in the way but again this is a this is a fun little film that I think you would enjoy what I think is until Jason Goes to Hell came along, my least favorite Friday the 13th movie, Jason versus Carrie, came out this year. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the generic white box with a barcode on it. I think one through six, and I don't like one all that much, but they all have an identity, and they all feel like real movies. And for some reason, number seven has never felt like a real movie to me. It... It is so bland, and the characters are so bland, and the set pieces are bland, and the ending is bland. I don't know why this one has any fans at all. I don't. And then a lot of people didn't like this next movie, but I actually like Fright Night Part 2 better than I like Fright Night. I think Fright Night Part 2 is more fun. Tracy Lynn, of course, that's that obviously is going to tip it t- towards me. I think Fright Night Part 2, it expands on the mythology of the first film. And it's a much, I don't want to say darker, because the first film is pretty freaking dark. But this film takes things into a more absurd level while being, bringing them darker. Like the bowling with human heads is both absurd and way too dark for that first movie. I love Fright Night Part 2, and everybody hates it. And I'm one of them. I think it's a terrible, I'm sorry, it's a terrible movie. First, it suffers the main thing that a lot of sequels suffer from. It's a remake. They quite literally do almost everything the first film does. Then it has the worst crime of all. They have this whole thing. Charlie now believes the events of the first film were all in his head. F you, Fright Night 2. All right, well, what about Halloween 4, which I'm not going to count Halloween 3 as a sequel because we all know it basically isn't. No. 
Halloween 4 is my favorite of all of the actual Michael Myers sequels. I think it feels right. It feels like Halloween in the Midwest for once. This one feels like Halloween. It it has that right balance of mean-spiritedness and wit to it. I really, really like Halloween 4. I think Dwight H. Little did a great job. Love seeing Donald Pleasance back. I think Ellie Cornell and Danielle Harris both kill it in their roles, especially Danielle Harris for her age. Everybody hates Halloween 4, and I don't know why. I don't hate it, but you already know my feelings on this. Uh, Halloween 1 is superior on every level. The whole it's set really in the Midwest means nothing to me. It has very little identity. It's, again, kind of bland, but in this case, I'll say that the blandness isn't, it doesn't ruin it. It is nice to see Pleasance back. It's not a horrible movie. It's kind of a soft reboot, really. It's okay, and that's about all I'll ever give it. It's sort of like a made-for-TV movie put on the big screen. And then we got Hellraiser 2. Sorry, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. I used to say was my favorite of all the films. I used to say it was better than the original. And having watched 1 and 2 again back-to-back a couple of months ago... I actually got to go back to the first film as being the better one. I don't think two held up nearly as well as I remembered it. It's weird when I I, th- I used to think the same thing too, and I didn't remember two being as hokey as it was. I think the thing is is that two has some great themes, and I think those. I don't mean score because the score is fantastic, by the way. It's an amazing score. I mean thematically, the idea of a labyrinth of hell and people being trapped in their own hell, and there's some great ideas in this film. But it just turns into such a hokey schlock fest when that doctor gets turned into a Cenobite and he's cracking those bad puns as he's killing patients. It's not, I don't know, it just kind of falls apart, doesn't it? Well, then we go to two comedies, although one of them I'm not 100% sure was meant to be. I didn't like Hobgoblins or Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Uh, Hobgoblins, I don't have any affection for. it. It's one of those supposedly so bad it's good. I don't get it. It wasn't fun to me. Killer Clowns, though, I will fight you to the death over. I love Killer Clowns. That That's a great film. That is just lots of fun. Pitch black comedy. Just a good time, man. Just a good time. I don't know why you don't like that one. It seems almost right up your alley. So I'd ask you, why don't you like it? Well, in theory, Layer of the White Worm should be up my alley. But maybe it's my hatred of Ken Russell. But I find the movie to be pseudo-pretentious trash. Yeah, I don't like Lair of the White Worm either, by the way. It's it's exactly what you said it is, and worse. Again, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we did a whole retrospective. I love Lustig's Maniac Cop. Maniac Cop was a great 1988 film. It played as both a cop movie and a slasher movie, which is kind of hard to do sometimes. For me, Maniac, I, I love Maniac Cop 2 so much that I think Maniac Cop is sort of taking a back seat a little bit, sort of the way Evil Dead is taking the back seat for me, well, you know, because Evil Dead 2 is so good. But Maniac Cop is, a, especially when you know the story behind it, that's one of those films where a can-do attitude of a filmmaker got a movie made. And Lustig was really up against the wall in that movie, and he did it. He succeeded. It's an entertaining film. Miracle Mile, which I think is a shockingly underrated film. Yes, it's very 80s. No big plot spoilers, but I was actually surprised at the ending. Yes, I love Miracle Mile. I had the uh, good fortune of seeing it at a film festival. I fell madly in love with it, and I thought for sure this movie was going to pop up everywhere, and it popped up nowhere. Uh, I could be in the Arctic right now, f***ing penguins! This, this is a neat little movie 
And seriously, we, I think the less we say about it, the better. This is one of those films that'll just surprise you. It, it's how the characters address a situation. The, the, there's the, a the sense of dread, dread that keeps growing as the film progresses. Uh, Tangerine Dream does the score. And this is one of those cases where the score almost becomes part of the story. It's making you more nervous. <laughs> That progressive synth sound, it, it really works. Seriously, check out Miracle Mile. It was meant to be an episode of the Twilight Zone TV series, and uh, it was actually rejected because they thought it was too good. <laughs> and I think uh, they were right. This this needed to be a movie, and it's a really cool film. You know what was not too good? Hmm. George Romero's Monkey Shines. Boo, I like this is, it. This is arguably, until Survival of the Dead, I think this was my least favorite George Romero film ever. I can't pick on you for this one. This is kind of a silly movie. You have to accept a lot. I don't hate it, though. I don't. I admit it. I confess, I like the schlock nature of it. What about Night of the Demons? Now, I'm not talking about the two awful sequels. The the third act falls apart for this movie, but the first hour of Night of the Demons is a perfect Halloween movie. I was bored out of my mind in this one, so I don't really have an I, I don't have any love for this film, so of course we're still going with sequels and franchises. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. It's not a bad movie, especially when you look at the franchise as a whole, but following how good three was this movie had no choice but to be a disappointment. I know I've said this here before, but I think Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the greatest wasted opportunities in uh, cinema history as far as sequels are concerned. Freddy Krueger could go anywhere. He could represent anything in any person because your dreams are the perfect Jungian expression of yourself. They stuck it in the, the Friday the 13th set in a camp scenario kind of thing. It's it's always teenagers. It's always the same town. It's bland. It's like Rennie Harlan does a lot visually with the movie. I think that's why the film works when it does. You're so bored with watching Freddy attack teenagers. You could have done so much more with Kruger. You could have had a – just like Alien Nation used aliens to represent minorities, you could have had people like Freddy representing the, the guilt and darkness in people's souls. What You know, imagine like a group of Wall Street executives in the 1980s having nightmares, you know, and Freddy Krueger's attack. I mean, you could do anything. They actually did some of that in the TV series. Is it sad when the TV series that is – very rightfully maligned as being pretty terrible, has more original ideas than the movies do. Well, it is. It's, it's, this is one of those things where you look at it, it could have been anything. They could have done anything. And when you look at part four, I think that's why part four is maligned, is because you see the potential. And all it is, is it's one, two, and three bigger effects. And, eh, okay. But then there was one sequel in 1988 that did it right. Phantasm 2, which is my favorite of the five Phantasm movies. Four, really, because Phantasm 5 is more of a fan film, even if it's made by the original people, but we'll not get into that now. I loved the recasting of James Legros. I'm sorry, guys. Michael Baldwin couldn't act in the first film. He was a kid, so I gave him a pass. And then I saw him in, in 3 and 4. He still can't act. James Legros acts just rings around him. I love the new special effects. I love the new mythology. I thought Phantasm 2 is it just beats every other film in that franchise. 
Phantasm II is a very slick-looking movie. It has a great look. It has a great feel. James LeGrow is a step in the right direction acting-wise. Uh, we talked about this between us once. Uh, I, I agree. Michael can't act. And yet, part of me is glad to see him back in the sequels, you know, meaning three and four and that. But uh, two has lost a little bit of its sheen with me over the years, though. Rewatching it, it feels like something's wrong, and it's bothered me for a long time. Uh, Coscarelli has said that this film was taken away from him and in the editing room, and it kind of feels like it if you watch the film. It's very literal, whereas if you look at all the other Phantasm movies, the whole dream reality thing's a little... Uh, more questionable. You don't always know what you're in. It's still a fun movie that I enjoy. It's dark. This one's meaner. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. The balls are definitely more ferocious. It's still worth watching, and it could be argued it's one of the best films in the franchise. We did a whole Poltergeist retrospective, but I remember hating Poltergeist 3. I saw this in the theater, hated it. Gave it another chance, saw it on HBO, hated it. And then I rewatched it for our Poltergeist retrospective and said, what the hell was the matter with me? This is shockingly unique. It takes the franchise into a different direction. It actually does something new with it. It has legitimately scary scenes in it. It's extremely well directed. It has a totally different tone to it. It has a satire to the script. Gary Sherman's Poltergeist 3 is a just completely overlooked film because that 3 in the title just pushes everybody away and nobody gives this movie a chance. And that's exactly it. It's uh, probably the reason you rejected it at the time yourself. It's part of a franchise when the film itself is not part of the franchise. It feels like a completely different movie. There, it, it's, it's, they do all these. Which is what I would have liked because the second film was a complete freaking rehash. Well, the second film didn't do anything different. So this one tries to do it different and people bitch about it. Well, I, I consider this co sort of the Halloween three of the franchise, you know? Feels like not, it, it, you know, Halloween three is a completely different movie, literally. Whereas part three in this has the same character, Heather O'Rourke. But yet the feel of the movie is like, it would be like as if you took Laurie Strode and put her in Halloween three, but you know, the, the plot was still the same. It's, it feels different. The other films had all those very Spielberg effects. But Poltergeist 3 is all practical effects. The thing they did with the mirrors, the cold room, and it's really more like those lower-budgeted horror films we kind of dig. I like uh, Poltergeist 3. It took me a way too long to see it because I heard all the negative. And then, of course, Heather O'Rourke died. So it was a film I didn't see for a long time. When I finally did, I loved it. And I was like, I did myself a great disservice. But then again... If I had seen it right when it came out, I might have suffered the same thing you did and so many other people did. You wanted to see a Poltergeist sequel, but got this film. That turns out to be why it's actually an enjoyable little movie. It's it's worth seeing. Well, and then we got, like, Pulse, the the Cliff, the Cliff the Young movie with Matthew Lawrence. I thought Pulse was a great idea. And I know Cecil just did a good bad flick on it not that long ago. Wow, this movie does not work. No. In theory, it should. It just doesn't. It's, uh, 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 well, my review has nothing to do with Cecil doing a thing of it. It's bland. It's boring. Great idea. Good cast. There's nothing there. That's it. It's, it's not good. I'm sorry. I, I will never watch that film again. Well, and then you got a movie that probably needed a couple of more rewrites, but I think Stan Winston's Pumpkinhead is an amazing visual film. 
I, I mean, this is directed by a special effects wizard. It looks great. I love the way he uses color, and it's so moody. Problem is, it's not really all that well written. While I won't disagree that some of the writing falls short, I will disagree that it, I think the movie works. When I first saw it, I didn't have the greatest reaction to it. Upon seeing it again, I think it might be as close to what you would call a real Halloween movie. And what I mean by that is when you talk about those campfire stories that were meant to scare children, a lot of films make that claim, but they're movies, you know, they're just movies. Pumpkinhead feels like a genuine campfire story. It's, it's too bad that if anything hurts it, it's how mean spirited it is because if any film would actually probably benefit from being more in that PG-13 range, I think Pumpkinhead would. This is the kind of movie that's great for scaring children half to death. I think they made a mistake going R. I know a lot of people go, no, no, keep it R, keep it harsh, keep it... But I think it was just a little too mean-spirited, a little too much swearing. And by cutting... That stuff was just unnecessary. It's a really great Halloween scare movie. I think it would have worked as a better gateway horror film for kids or younger, you know, for teens than adults. I think that's what's holding it back. It's it's really not an R-rated movie. It doesn't feel like an R-rated movie to me. You want to talk about a movie that doesn't feel R-rated? Return of the Living Dead Part 2. <laughs> yes. I This movie is completely miscalculated on every conceivable level. It's trying to be a straight-up comedy instead of a comedy horror film. I think they thought they were being satirical, but nothing in this movie is funny. Nothing in Return of the Living Dead Part 2 works. I don't know how just how wrong-headed this was. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. I kind of like it, but you are so right on every level. It does have a couple of laughs, but it fails to be a funny movie. It, this would... This does feel more like something you'd see on Goosebumps than Return of the Living Dead. Well, and then we've got the first of two Red Brown movies this year, Bruno Mattei's Robo War and David Winter's Space Mutiny with Chest McLarge Huge. <laughs> As we're rounding out the, the genre films, we got Serpent in the Rainbow by Wes Craven, which I've never gotten into. I've never understood why so many people love this movie. I've had people tell me, oh my god, this is the scariest horror movie ever made. I'm in the voodoo and everything, and I'm just going, I was bored silly in Serpent in the Rainbow. I haven't seen it in a long time. When I saw it in the theater, I loved it. I I freaking loved it. But I do have a vague memory of watching it on VHS years later, and kind of picking it apart, but I don't remember what it was. I, I know that Dream Warrior fight at the end was kind of silly. The Seventh Sign, the Demi Moore movie with Michael Bean. I remember Seventh Sign being boring as hell. I actually fall, fell asleep in the theater watching this, because I was promised a horror movie about the devil coming to Earth, and that is not the freaking movie I got. Now, it turns out after the fact, I found out Demi Moore had control over this movie, and you can tell. Uh, you go there expecting the omen, and you get General Hospital. I hate this movie, and literally I have nothing to add to what you said. It's it's garbage. I don't even think we need to talk about They Live. I mean, we all know They Live is a fantastic movie that it didn't find its audience in 1988. But it's a very 1988 movie, and I don't mean that in a negative. It's a movie that could only have happened right at the end of the Reagan administration mm -hmm. and right at the end of the decade. They Live is a quintessential late 80s 
movie that actually has something to say. I love They Live. I've talked about it a million times. I, I think the audience knows very well. Great film. If you've never seen it, what's wrong with you? Well, then we got Watchers, which I'm going to gloss over because we got a whole Watchers retrospective I want to do later this That's year. Cool. I just want to skip over Watchers. But then we come to a film I'm 50-50 on. No, I don't like Anthony Hickox. I think he's a he's basically a hack who got lucky a few times. I love aspects of waxwork. I love the little, even the way the story puts the vignettes in there. Because basically this is a film of vignettes with another threadbare plot. The problem is the threadbare plot is f***ing stupid. But I love all of the little vignettes in waxwork. So I'm 50-50 on this one. Love parts of it. Hate parts of it. Well, this is a film Anthony's uh has been very honest on. First of all, my favorite of his will always be Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat. That's why I did it for Movie Apocalypse. I think that's his best work. I love that movie. That's one of the ones where I I thought he got lucky because that was a good that one. That was a really good one. Because he, he normally makes hacky schlock. Well, you know, it's got its flaws. I, I won't doubt it. You know, it, it has flaws that his other films have, but that one works almost entirely. It's fun. It's it's original. It just, it's a great time. Waxworks, if you were to start watching this movie after hearing how many people love it, you would be perplexed because the first part of this movie is really bad. The writing is bad. The acting is not very good. The exchanges between the characters are weird. It's not. They're still good to be kind. There's yeah, and there's not how human beings talk. And Anthony admits this. If you've heard the commentary, it's it's very flawed. He was piecing the movie together. Once you get to the waxworks and you get David Warner and you start to go into the vignette, it turns into a very fun movie. I love how they actually make all the vignettes feel totally different from one another. You know, the vampire vignette feels totally different from the werewolf one, than from the than from the mummy one, than from the Marquis de Sade one. I actually kind of like the idea in the Marquis de Sade one that Deborah Foreman is trapped there. But she's always been sort of a, of a masochist. And so she's not being tormented the way she's supposed to be because she actually gets off on what he's doing, which even surprises the characters. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a twist I didn't see coming. Yeah, she's her own worst enemy. And you know, Waxworks is one of those films you almost can't help but wonder in the hands of a, a you know, a better writer and director, would it be a good remake? I hate to use that word and I hate remakes. Again, there's, I think, some unexplored themes in Waxworks that really could be good. But the film as it stands is actually a, is fun. Don't expect a lot. Don't go in expecting greatness. And I, I think you'll have a good time. It, it's, it's pretty good. It gets better as it goes. I actually think, I actually think the ending pissed me off the most because of the untapped potential. Because you see at the end when all the different waxworks start to come alive, you see all these ones we didn't see. Like an alien invasion one, and there's a little shop of horrors one. Why didn't we get to see those? Come on! This movie was really, really cheap. Uh, they talk about it on the commentary. Uh, by the way, the, the Blu-rays are, are worth a buy if you're, uh, if you're into that. And, uh, there's commentaries, there's a little behind the scenes. They talk about all that. And they barely had any money and barely finished the film. It's like they focused on all the horror ones, but they teased us with all these sci-fi ones, and the sequel never freaking went there either. Well, it did. That's a different it did. Story. There's an alien sequence in part two. But yeah, not very good. Not 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 the one that not the one that was promised in the first. No, time. no, and it's not the sequel is not very good. Sad, and losing Deborah Foreman really hurt the film. I mean, Deborah's not what you call or Deborah, excuse me, Deborah's not what you call a a good actress, but. 
she's so cute and she has a charm about her and that's why she works and not having her in the sequel really hurt it. And then we'll end off this with Willow, a film I saw in the theater and I didn't like. So I gave it a chance on HBO and didn't like. Gave it another chance on video, didn't like it. I really want to like it, so I gave it a chance on DVD. I don't like it. I don't know why Willow just doesn't work for me. Ah, uh, because it's not a very good story. It's about as bland of a fantasy adventure as you can get. However, there is one reason everyone should watch this movie, and that is Val Kilmar. This movie, more so than any other film early on, shows the potential of what Val Kilmar would become. Any trace of, because one of my personal favorites for Val will always be Tombstone. He's amazing in Tombstone. He is Tombstone. And you see those traces of that Val Kilmar. You like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? You'll see the beginning of that. You like Tombstone? You'll see the beginning of that. He is so much fun in this movie. And you know what? It's worth watching just because of him. Well, then we'll we'll, we'll actually finish the episode because we looked at the I mentioned the top ten earlier, but we got Rain Man. We have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I don't like. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is the same thing we talked about with a couple of these other films. I don't care one inkling about the plot. I love all of the little vignettes. I love all of the little cameos. I don't care Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I don't care about Judge Doom. It's fun. I like it. It's, uh, but I have, again, I have a bias. I like that time period and I like seeing that time period depicted. Eddie's a detective. Again, my bias, love detectives. I love, uh, Hoskins. There's a lot of great actors in this. I will agree about the plot. The plot's pointless, but then again, I think it knows the plot is pointless. So it doesn't care. Then we got Coming to America, a film I, I saw in the theater. I remember loving. I watched it again about three years ago and went, maybe half the jokes work. It's a film that's of its time. There's no denying that. It fits its time. Loved it. I laughed hysterically. If I go back and watch 48 Hours, I think that film's gotten better over the years. Coming to America, just the opposite. I think that the further we get away from that time period, the worse it seems to get. And then we got Big, which is a film, again, I saw in the theater. I didn't like it. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. I think it's trying too hard to be cutesy, and it just just glosses over, I don't want to say the realistic questions, but the ethical questions that you should be bringing up at this point. I think Big is a, it's the literal definition of a rose-colored glasses film. Big is a film I've never, ever understood whose its audience was supposed to be. At one point, it seems to be about addressing, loose, you know, when we get older, losing that childlike side who we once were and becoming too much of an adult yet then it forces that character into becoming an adult at times and having sex which if it wasn't a kid in your mind may wouldn't be offensive but it's a kid that's creepy i that last act just falls apart I just don't know who this movie was supposed to be for it even has a a little kid drop the f bomb I don't know who this movie was for, and that's always sort of bug bugged me. I, I don't think it really hit home with me. Everyone loves it. I'm going to just be in the category of, eh, I, I don't get it. Just like twins. I, I think, in theory, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito being twins could be funny. I didn't think a single joke in this film was funny. I liked twins when I saw it in the theater, but you know what? I'd be afraid to go back and watch it now. 
I, I would because I don't think it would hold up. That's why I haven't seen it again, and I think I'm going to just skip it because I liked it at the time. I had a good time. But thinking back at all the scenes, what the story is, the moments, I can't remember something that I thought was hysterical. Then you have Crocodile Dundee 2. Talk about a lazy film. They literally just palette-swapped it and remade the first movie. Yeah, the the New York stuff is okay, and then when they go to the Outback, it just sort of drops dead, and it becomes boring. It's not a horrible movie. It's it's okay. It's Again, I'd say it's more of a made-for-TV kind of feel to it, and eh, an unnecessary sequel. Well, then, do we even really need to talk about why Die Hard is actually awesome? Die Hard was a film that no one saw coming, and uh, we've already covered everything about it. I saw it in the theater, too. Yeah, same here, and Die Hard was the right movie at the right time. That's for sure. And it we already covered the rest of it. The the old guard was dying. Now, the next one here, The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. I love the movie, so I'm not bashing it at all. I'm really surprised this movie made $79 million. It's a movie continuation of a TV series absolutely nobody watched. That should be a recipe for disaster in 88. Somehow it wasn't. I think that that film, well, first of all, it's funny. And I don't think that we have to dig too deep. It's funny. Why was it successful? It was funny. It had uh, a good cast, recognize, you know, recognizable names. It was made by the guys who made Airplane, which felt like a return to that. And there was kind of a gap in that type of humor. You didn't have a lot of Mel Brooks. You didn't have a lot of them at that time. Based off of a TV series that only lasted six episodes, and even the DVDs state they were the second lowest rated show of the entire year. See, here's the thing. No one, no one watched Police Squad. But see, that's your problem. You're, lo- you're looking at it as if, why would people who didn't watch a TV series watch the movie? And they had nothing to do with each other in people's minds. People didn't know about the series. They didn't know. A few of us did, but because we were VHS hounds. <laughs> but... The, the audiences didn't know. It was, as far as they knew, it was the guys that made Airplane. Well, and then we go Cocktail, which we've already talked mm-hmm. about, and then finally Beetlejuice, uh, uh-huh. which is a movie... I don't like the movie. I like the style. I like the tone. Don't like the script. I don't think it's funny. The, the movie had too much Tim Burton in it, and I know how weird that sounds, but he should have directed it, and someone else should have been there to stop him. We've talked before, you know, how sometimes you need a producer... To make you go, no, no, bad idea, bad idea. He didn't have that on Beetlejuice. Well, uh, we're going to just disagree on this one. Back then, I can't tell you how much Beetlejuice meant to me. I love Beetlejuice, and I still do. Uh, if it's waned a little bit for me, it's not because of the movie. It's because of Tim Burton and his career, and every film looks like a Tim Burton movie. But back in 88, I, as someone who adores things like the Adams Family, Beetlejuice just just fits my niche it completely i love movies like that it's it's got me written all over it i think it's funny i think it's a great time it'll be underappreciated now because again if you've suffered through so many of these tim burton movies beetlejuice is not original back in 88 there was nothing like beetlejuice it was a wonderful film and it's going to always have a special place in my heart honorable mentions golden raspberries worst picture cocktail Worst actor, Sylvester Stallone in Rambo 3. Worst actress, a twofer, Liza Minnelli in Arthur 2 on the Rocks and Rent-A-Cop. 
Worst Supporting Actor, Dan Aykroyd in Caddyshack 2. Actually, everything about Caddyshack 2 is worst. That film is worst awful. Supporting act- worst Supporting Actress, Christy McNichol in Two Moon Junction. Worst Director is a tie. Blake Edwards for Sunset and Stuart Raffle for Mac and Me. <laughs> worst Screenplay, Cocktail. Worst New Star, Ronald McDonald as himself in Mac and Me. <laughs> and Worst Original Song, Jack Fresh from Caddyshack 2. Fred, to sum up 1988, what type of a year is it after we've gone through all this? That's an interesting question because I don't know if we could surmise it. I, I think that it's the beginning of, uh, I once called, uh, 89 the door hinge year, uh, as things would completely shift into what would become the 90s and a very 90s feel. So I think this, we'll call this the harbinger year. This is the year that sort of heralded Things are about to change, whether for good or for bad. That's, of course, up to every individual, and perhaps on future episodes we could address that. So I'm going to call it the Harbinger Age, the year of uh, the changes were coming. Well, you know what doesn't change, and that's Fred Fritz. Where can people find him? Well, uh, you're right about that. I'm still over at Movie Apocalypse on Facebook. That's it. There will be a YouTube page eventually when this uh, short horror film is done. More information, and the only updates are on Movie Apocalypse right now, but not much there yet. Well, and you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Yo, friends, check this out. Knows the name and they call me the king. Grandmaster of the chicken and the waffle thing. I sit now, read my lips, and friends, don't miss a word. Cause the grandmaster's gonna give you the bird. And my food's so cheap, you'll lick your plate clean When I slow down, the ladies all big Just gonna let me taste your chicken leg Come on, fly girls, and wiggle them their bottoms Waffles just paying cakes with little squares on Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.